This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, Agrippina the Younger was for a time one of the most powerful women in the Roman world. Born in the early 1st century AD, she was a member of the Julio-Claudian dynasty that ruled the Roman Empire for many decades. When her brother Caligula became emperor, she exercised at first considerable influence. After she married the Emperor Claudius, she enjoyed high status as empress and secured that position through complex political manoeuvres. When her teenage son Nero came to power, she effectively acted as his regent. Her life was full of tremendous drama and intrigue. In 39 AD, she allegedly took part in a plot against Caligula, her brother, and he sent her into exile. It was said that she poisoned her husband Claudius. Nero eventually turned against his mother and had her killed. With me to discuss the dark, operatic and contested life of Agrippina the Younger are Catherine Edwards, Professor of Classics and Ancient History at Birkbeck University of London, Alice Koenig, lecturer in Latin and Classical Studies at the University of St Andrews, and Matthew Nichols, Associate Professor of Classics at the University of Reading. Catherine Edwards, Agrippina the Younger was born in about 15 AD. What changes have taken place in Rome, in Rome's political situation in the decade or so leading to her birth? Well, Agrippina was born into what was really Rome's first family, if you like. Rome had previously been a republic, but um, in the tumultuous years of the first century BC, uh, long periods of civil war were succeeded by an autocracy that was established by Agrippina's great-grandfather, the Emperor Augustus. Augustus had then ruled Rome for about 40-odd years. He died in the year 14, just before um, Agrippina was born, and was succeeded by his stepson, Tiberius, who was the son of his wife, Livia. But we're talking about Augustus being a quite remarkable man. I mean, to be the first uh, emperor after the machinations of a republic and the efforts of a republic is one thing. And he, but to stay there for such a long time is another. To turn himself into a semi-god is another. But then he introduced dynastic politics. Uh, from now on, somehow or other, people had to be related to previous empires, i.e. to his family. He was the founding family. That's right, but it was a it was a very sort of, in a way, rather informal um, setup because it wasn't the case that he designated an heir in an official way. But he he would um, there were various signs that first of all that his grandsons were were marked out to be his heirs. He didn't actually have a son; he had a daughter, Julia. So her sons were marked out as his heirs, but they died before him. Um, and then later, he was obliged to adopt Tiberius, his stepson, to take over his powers. The idea of adoption was very strong then, wasn't it? And and it was very positive. You adopted somebody and that was that they were your son to all intents and purposes. People didn't challenge that. That's right. I mean, adoption had traditionally been used by the Roman aristocracy in a family where there wasn't a male... uh a male heir particularly, you would adopt someone who would take on your family name, take on your family religious obligations um, and inherit your your family's um, prestige Um, and that became all the more important uh, under the Principate uh, with emperors who, many of whom didn't actually have a a son who survived to adulthood and they would then adopt someone who was a plausible looking candidate to take over um, their, to inherit their, their property and their 
in due course. So can we take up take up Agrippina from her birth over the first few years? What what did she experience? The first family was it massive wealth, massive access? You tell me. Well, Agrippina's father was Germanicus, who was a, a tremendously glamorous and um, popular character. He was, in fact, the the grandson of. Um, Augustus' wife, Livia. He was um, a very successful general and he'd had military successes in Germany particularly. And it was indeed, it was in Germany that Agrippina was born in what is modern Cologne. Um, now her mother, Agrippina the Elder, uh, was actually the granddaughter of Augustus himself. So she, she was descended both from Augustus and from his wife, Livia. Um, her mother, Agrippina, was a very powerful, uh, had, had a very sort of powerful character and uh, is described with some ambivalence by ancient historians, particularly Tacitus, who in some ways admires her, her courage. I mean, she stood up to um, mutinying soldiers uh, when they were in, in the camp in the Rhine. Um, I didn't and quite get that. She stood up to them how and when and who were they? Well, she made the Roman soldiers ashamed of having mutinied because... Um, they were posing a threat to her and her young family. So when she and when there was a, uh, the suggestion that th th there was too much trouble in the camp and that um, Agrippina and her young children would have to leave, the soldiers were so ashamed that Augustus's granddaughter was going to be leaving them that that sort of calmed them down. Um, and then there's another occasion when she um, intervenes to stop a bridge being destroyed. And again, these are seen as, as in a way brave acts, but also ones that are not entirely appropriate to a woman and so she was she brought up in an almost entirely martial family which is also a family of supreme power uh, and what was expected of her after being the younger Agrippina the Younger, well, it, we don't know very much about her early education. In fact, her father died when she was very young. So in, in, in again, as, as always in this, in this story, mysterious circumstances. Very mysterious circumstances, yes. Um, there are lots of stories that he was poisoned and suspicion fell on, um, on another um, Roman, uh, leading Roman. This, at this stage, um, Germanicus was in, in the east, in, in Syria, and suspicion fell on Piso, and the idea was that Piso had been put up to this by Tiberius on the grounds that Tiberius was jealous of Germanicus. So there's a very sort of complicated intrigue within the, within the imperial family. But uh, um, Germanicus dies when Agrippina is really very young, and that leaves her quite vulnerable because there's a lot of tension between her mother, Agrippina the Elder, and Tiberius, and also between Agrippina and the elder Agrippina and Livia, who's powerful because she's Tiberius's mother. It, just finally, before I move on, uh, how far does she does she do we feel do we know anything about her feeling of how far she was from the centre of power at this stage as a young girl as a, as a, not not even yet what we now call a teenager. We don't know very much about how she felt, and it's a bit tantalising because we do know that she actually wrote her own memoirs. Much later, um, when her son Nero was emperor, Agrippina wrote her memoirs, which rec recorded her life and uh, the fortunes of her family. So it would have been very gripping reading. Those memoirs were known to the historian Tacitus, and he has one episode which he explicitly says he's taken from those memoirs, but he may well have taken all sorts of other things as well. But we never find out what she really felt when she was... Uh, a teenager in Rome. Because they're otherwise lost. 
Yes, I'm afraid so. Well, there you go. Alec Koenig, how tumultuous was her younger child? Can we d develop this younger child? Was she brought up in a... I said a, her, her father died in mysterious circumstances. That seems to be... Mysterious circumstances seem to be in the order of the day. Yes, absolutely. Agrippina, the younger, spent much of her childhood watching various members of her family disappear in mysterious or um, uh, uh, unpleasant circumstances. So she must have had a very unsettled childhood. You know, She lost her father when she was about four or five um, uh, she then that the the loss of her father um, pitched her mother Agrippina the elder and Tiberius into uh, um, a very hostile um, relationship Agrippina the elder um, came back from Syria with the ashes of her husband Germanicus um, and was met um, by Germanicus's brother Claudius um, but conspicuously not met by Tiberius or Livia um, and she proceeded then to try and bring Tiberius and Livia to account for the death of her husband. So, uh, and it, it precipitated a great crisis in Tiberius's reign. He was forced in the end to put on trial Piso, who um, was supposed to have been instrumental in poisoning um, uh, uh, Germanicus. Um, in fact, Piso and his wife Plancina were put on trial. Plancina was a great friend of Livia's, and Livia managed to get her off the charges. Um, but Piso was eventually. Um, uh, uh, dealt with um, and but Agrippina the Elder continued to be a thorn in Tiberius's side and um, she became a great rallying sent, uh, 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 someone uh, for whom around whom antipathy for the Emperor Tiberius um, gathered um, and uh, so Agrippina the Younger grew up while that relationship was breaking down and it culminated eventually in Agrippina the Elder being arrested, being exiled and eventually being done to death. So Horribly done to death. Horribly done to death. Beaten, flogged until so bad she lost an eye and then starved to death. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, and in the meantime also two of Agrippina's brothers um, were imprisoned and killed. Um, and starved to death, eating stuffing from mattresses. Absolutely, yeah. that's the, the story, that one of them was so yeah. hungry he ended up eating the stuffing from inside his mattress um, while in prison. Um, so she was surrounded by all, oh, this is her mother, these are her brothers, and there was another brother, of course, just to feature. Absolutely, um, the one brother who survives becomes the Emperor Caligula. Um, so she she grew up with the the incredible example of her formidable mother, um, who, as Catherine has just said, managed to uh, was almost a more effective military commander at times than her husband Germanicus in quelling mutinies, um, but who also was incredibly um, uh, uh, ill-advised in her hostility to the emperor. But she also grew up. She ended up once her mother was exiled. She ended up going to live with her great grandmother Livia, and so she grew up under the influence of a very different, powerful, subtly powerful um, woman there. And she married. Uh Domitius Ahenobarbus. Absolutely. When she so was 13. When she was 13 and he would have been about 30. And that, you know, How did that work out? Um, they were married for about 12 years. We, we don't know a great deal about the marriage. We're told by Suetonius that he was a very shady character. So there are various stories that he um, deliberately ran over a child playing in a village street because he was in his way. Um, and um, so he, he seems to have been a very unsalubrious character, although those stories might have come about because... Um, he gave he he produced one child the marriage produced just one child about nine years in 
Um, the, the boy who was to become the Emperor Nero. And his father didn't give him a very good character reference, did he, from the start? No, apparently um, Domitius had said that any offspring of himself and Agrippina was bound to be a monstrosity. Um, again, who knows how much that story is based in truth or is a colourful um, uh, way of preparing the ground for the... Was it a significant Emperor. marriage or was it just a sort of sideways shunt for a younger daughter? Um... It was like many of the marriages that were arranged um, for Agrippina and uh, members of the imperial family. She, she was faintly related to Domitius Ahenobarbus. He was descended via Octavia, Augustus's sister. Um, so it, it was a, it, it wasn't a sideways shunt. It was a, it was a prestigious marriage, um, and it was. It was always going to be the case that any offspring of that marriage, if it was going to be male, would be a potential heir in the Julio-Claudian family. And this is one thing that happens again and again and again. Producing male heirs is massively important, and they're, they're the sort of kings on the chessboard, kings in waiting on the chessboard, aren't they? Yes. If Agrippina had had daughters or had had no children at all, she would not have gone on to have the career that she had because she gave birth to Nero, or who, the, the emperor, the, the boy who would become Nero, um, she went on to have an extraordinary time. Matthew, Matthew Nichols, in 37 AD, uh, Agrippina's brother Caligula became emperor. And what kind of status did that give Agrippina? It gave her enormous status very quickly, and she was caught up in the glamour and excitement of the change from the decrepit old, rather disliked emperor Tiberius to someone who appeared at that stage to be a promising young prince. He was full of the glamour of Germanicus that we've heard about. His name Caligula is a nickname. His real name is Gaius. Caligula is a name that means little boots from the little army boots that the soldiers in the camp would, would dress him up in. So he was full of this military He followed his father on yes, campaigns, yes. That's right. So he was seen as a great hope, and his story is one of astonishingly quick decline from promise to complete dissolution, and his sisters are caught up in that. But initially, she was given very, very positive status. She was promoted, she and her two sisters. She was given the rights that the Vestal Virgins had, for example, which means that she got to sit in the front seats at public spectacles, and that's not a trivial honour. It puts her right in centre stage, right in front of the Roman people as a, a princess of the blood. She was commemorated on coin issues. So there's an extraordinary Cistertius that shows her and her two sisters dressed up as goddesses of security and prosperity and concord, uh, as if they are somehow underpinning the, the happiness of the times. And her name is included in the loyalty oaths that the Roman army and the Senate and the governors all swear to the emperor. And that's the first time that's happened, to have imperial women right there in the, the core of the loyalty of the, um, the soldiers to the, to the emperor. So early on, she's given great status. That turns sour fairly fast. Is it at this time that, can we talk about the reputation? Uh, I suppose I'm talking about sexual excess here, well I am, on what moral, what we would call moral depravity, or some people would, some people wouldn't, there you go. Um, but the, the, but uh, this reputation attached itself to Khalil and to Agrippina, and yes. previously Messalina and so on. But let's stick with who we know, Agrippina and Caligula. Well, Caligula was accused of incest with his sisters, and the charge of incest comes up fairly frequently uh, and attaches to all sorts of people. It seems to be a way of blackening people's names quickly in a fairly unprovable way. Uh, is it completely unprovable? Do we? Is it one of those things that we have to say, it was said, it was reported, and, and that's as far as we can it's ever go? It's reported by authors later on. Yeah. Um, it's not always there, as far as we can tell, right at the time. But Caligula was making a great deal of his sisters, and you could see how rumours might start. Um, he was using his sisters in a way that sisters hadn't quite been used before. Such as? Well, in his promotion of them as part of his regime. He is 
saying that he is a lineal descendant of Augustus, which Tiberius wasn't. And so the Tiberius the previous, the previous emperor, right. with whom Caligula had gone to stay for about six years in Capri. That's right. And according to, I think, more fact than fiction this time, Tiberius had blackened him. I'm, I'm what did you nursing say? Nursing a viper I'm in my bosom. You say it in the clear. I'm, I'm nursing a viper for the Roman people. Um, the idea that this awful child, uh, brought up by his awful great uncle, was a kind of punishment for the Roman people. By this stage, Tiberius was in self-imposed exile on Capri and was very degenerate and strange. So we're back to, to Caligula and Agrippina. The, the, you've described, as it were, two good years. Mm-hmm. He was welcomed. He gave the Roman people what they wanted. He was this young man, and so on, and she was back him. Then, then what? The mood starts to change. Uh, Caligula is ill in the summer of 37, and when he recovers, somehow the, the glamour is worn off and things are starting to become difficult. His favourite sister, Drusilla, dies in 38. Uh, leaving the other two sisters a little bit exposed, perhaps. Um, Caligula remarries, which means he's starting to look to establish his own line. So now Agrippina and her son Nero are possibly a threat to that that future dynastic line. And then there's a conspiracy um, brought up um, or caught up with a possible military conspiracy on the German frontier where there are a lot of powerful legions. And uh, the commander of those legions, Gaetulicus, seems to be in some sort of rebellion. Caligula is on his way to put this down. And at a place called Mavonia, where he and his party are are on the road, there's then an accusation that Drusilla's widower, Lepidus, has been sleeping with both sisters, both remaining sisters simultaneously, Agrippina and Lavilla, and that this is somehow not just yet more adultery and, and, and sleeping around, but is also a conspiracy against the emperor. And so he moves against them, exiles them, confiscates their goods... Um, Lepidus is killed and we're told that the wagon trains to, to take their confiscated goods to auction were so many it interrupted the food supply for the whole city Right and we have, we've got a long way to go still, I mean it's uh, it's quite a plot, it's hold <laughs> hold on tight to the back isn't it sit up, right Catherine how much, let's generalise for a second to give ourselves a breather give us some idea of the influence maybe even power that Roman women could have in that beginning of the first century, reach of the first century AD? I think it is interesting to think about a change from the Republican period where um, political decisions were made very much in the Senate or um, in, in, in the public spaces of the city from which women were, were really excluded. Um, but with the, the move to uh, imperial power, autocratic power, decisions are made within the imperial household and of course women have uh, an acknowledged place in the household so they have an influence, they can, they can intervene with the emperor if they're close to the emperor. So there's that level of political power but I think nevertheless it's also true that in Roman society generally women as property holders have more power than perhaps in some other ancient societies. Um, and women d- are expected to participate in, in the social lives of the elite um, in the way that they weren't, for instance, in classical Athens. And we do find women, um, and particularly under, under, the, um, under the emperors, we find women visible in public in terms of statues. So we've got statues of Livia around the place. And even in a town like Pompeii, we find women as patrons. So there's Eumachia who, who builds a, a, a portico which has a statue of herself in it as well as a statue of Livius as a sense of, of kind of women of the imperial family as role models. But the power shifted from the Senate, men only, to what we could call the palace. Lots of women there. That's right. And I think that's one of the things that makes 
um, uh, traditionally minded Roman senators like Tacitus, who's one of our main sources for this period, very suspicious of the new system. They don't like the fact that decisions are being made behind closed doors. And so we get a lot of, of anxiety and suspicion about the influence of women on those decisions. And these are real decisions, aren't they? It's not it is reported, it was said. It's people getting being favoured, it's people getting let off stuff, it's people... The, the women, not only Agrippina and others, are being very effective at getting favours, influence for their friends just to start with and others. Yes, I mean, there are lots of stories about, for instance, um, Livia doing favours for her friend Erga Lanilla or um, uh, when Agrippina's married to... Claudius that she seems to intervene to get the brother of her favourite freedman palace put into a position of power in Judea. So uh, that, that really women's influence appears to be extending to the you know to the provinces of the empire. We're getting to Claudius. Thanks for the cue. Uh, and Caligula is assassinated. Uh, Claudius comes into power, and w- with his bad health, his limp, his stammer, his unlikeliness uh, to be an emperor. Um, can you tell us more about him, Alice? About Claudius? Yes. Yes, well, um, from very early on in his um, uh, uh, teenage years, it was decided by um, Augustus and and also Claudius's mother, Antonia, and Livia together that Claudius should never really have a public role. Um, you've mentioned the fact that he had some kind of nervous disorder. People speculate about exactly what it was, but it involved him stammering and limping. And we have Suetonius reports letters from Augustus to Livia um, talking about how, you know, this would, if, if Claudius became too visible, um, it would make people laugh about the imperial family. So there was a decision made very early on that while his brother Germanicus was being promoted and um, given all sorts of public appointments that that Claudius should be kept um, behind the scenes. Um, That's not how history turned out because when Caligula was assassinated um, uh, there was no... Can we just quickly tell the listeners who assassinated him and why? Why? Well... Caligula's unpopularity had been growing and we hear of a number of potential conspiracies and plots against him following the one that Matthew mentioned earlier. Um, Eventually in um, early in January 41 um, members of the Praetorian Guard the military force that's stationed in Rome um, possibly with some support from members of the Senate um, and with support of Imperial freedmen managed to um, concoct a plot that actually worked Caligula had been watching some games was making his way back from the games to the palace down a corridor he was suddenly stranded without any um, bodyguards and um, at least three um, characters came along and stabbed him 30 times and then they raced back to the palace managed to kill his wife his baby daughter and then uh, the accounts of the assassination and what follows um, differ, so it's hard to piece together the jigsaw. Um, I think we've got enough to be going on with. Let's go back to So Claudius became emperor in a most unlikely fashion as well. Well, absolutely. Um, one story is that um, he was found in the palace by members of the Praetorian Guard cowering behind a curtain, afraid that he was also going to be done to death and that he was marched off to the barracks and proclaimed emperor. And as Suetonius says, he was proclaimed emperor by some dreadful accident... Um, Why do they want him? Uh, These tough guys in the Praetorian Guard, why do they want him? The Praetorian Guard want an emperor, um, for a start. They don't want to return to the Republic. Their power relies on there being an emperor. Um, and Claudius perhaps was seen as someone who might be malleable. Um, uh, he is an obvious... He's not, he's not obvious in terms of his personality, but in terms of his um, descent from 
Tiberius, not Di- Tiberius, but from Livia, um, he's a mem- he's a member of the dynasty. So he's still in the clan, and he becomes a remarkably effective emperor in a lot of ways, doesn't he, Matthew? Matthew Nichols. Um, but his wife, when you mind, was Messalina. Yes. He was about forty; she was about eighteen-ish. Mm-hmm. Now, um, how much of a threat was Messalina to Agrippina? I think they were threats to each other and it's because of this business of the importance of the bloodline and manoeuvring heirs who might still be infants into a position where in 10, 15, 20 years time they might one day become emperor. So there is a core bloodline, we've seen it's not, it's not straightforward but there are people actually descended from Augustus and then orbiting around them like electrons around a nucleus are these outer shells of cousins and cousins of cousins, all of whom might have a claim or um, a distant stake to, to power. Messalina is in one of those lateral branches. Her descent is not from Augustus, it's from Augustus's sister. Whereas Agrippina is um, descended from Augustus and therefore her baby son Nero is descended from Augustus. So that's an obvious threat to any, any lineage that Messalina might be trying to establish. So they're threats to each other. They need to manoeuvre around each other to... Uh, secure the the prosperity of their own particular line, and they seem to circle round each other menacingly for the the first few years of the reign. And how does Claudius cope? Well, Claudius, we're told in our, in the sources, is is the dupe of his wives and his freedmen. We've heard about the soft power of women at the imperial court from Catherine, and alongside the women, there are these freedmen, ex-slaves, who can rise very high in terms of wealth and personal influence over the emperor, but they can never prosper freed politically. Freedmen, yeah. ex-slaves, often Greeks. And they're useful to the emperor because they can have no real ambition. Everything, like the Praetorians, they, they like everything to the they thought of. Us. Yes, yes, yeah. that's right. So at the court, uh, women and freedmen, we are told by our, our sources, make Claudius their, their dupe and their puppet for a time. Whether we believe their sources who are reaching for cliche and stereotype, I don't know, but that's the story. But he gets on with being an emperor very effectively. He comes yes. here and conquers Britain and he becomes does. a man who's conquered a country. Therefore, he can be a real emperor with a military success. He builds good aqueducts, which is always a, a mark in his favour. He builds a new port to ensure Rome's grain supply. He's a practical, capable emperor who rules for quite some time. He has various pet obsessions. He tries to reform Latin spelling and then never catches on. But I think that the record is broadly favourable to him. Um, Catherine, Catherine Edwards, um, Messalina downfall. What brought that about? Well, I think Messalina probably was not as cautious as she might have been about protecting her own position. The stories are that she was um, absolutely obsessed with uh, sexual, her, pursuing her sexual um, desires, and indeed Satyata that she said non satisfata. That was one of the phrases. <laughs> I think Robert Graves used that. Mm, yes, I mean there are some very lurid stories that she kind well, of... she competed with... Pro- we're a grown-up programme. I mean, yes. one of them, we can speak in proper language, so it doesn't offend younger listeners. I mean, she, she, she is said to have competed with prostitutes through the night. In, uh, and won, and won. She I, won against Rome's chief it. prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the satirist juvenile has this picture of her with sort of gilded nipples and exposing the belly that bore Germanicus... Sorry, Britannicus. <laughs> so, uh, so there's this, this sort of sense that... And, uh, he calls her, in fact, Meritrix Augusta. So she is, she's the the Augusta, in fact, that wasn't a title she had at that time, but that she is, she's the, the emperor's wife and she's also a prostitute meritrix. So she is absolutely, she's, she's a public uh, figure in the worst possible way. So there are stories about her 
her love affairs with actors like Menesta. But the really, when things become really problematic is when she has a relationship with Gaius Silius, who's another Roman senator, because at that point, an, an alliance with Silius could potentially threaten Claudius's position. There are stories that she wants to marry Silius, have Silius adopt Britannicus, and then, of course, um, he would be a stepfather to, to the, the, the male heir. So, so that's that's in a sense the you know the the story that um, makes it possible for the uh, the freedmen um, in Claudius's court to um, persuade Claudius that he should get rid of Messalina. So the stammeringly effective Claudius moves in, and he suggests that she kill herself. That's right. Yes. So the the, um, the soldiers. Or rather, he orders her to kill herself. That's yes, she's given herself. orders to kill herself. She finds it, uh, despite her mother's encouragement, she finds it difficult to, to carry these orders out. And Tasta says that's because her soul had been corrupted by lust. Um, there's this sort of sense that that kind of um, uh, the her erotic um, interests are, are, are kind of. In a way, a sort of an extreme feminine vice that's not compatible with the bravery that you need to commit suicide she, in the proper Roman she, way. How did she take her own life in the end? Um, with a dagger, but but you know it was it was. Um, I, in fact, I think in, it, she she didn't even. I think others helped her in the end, so uh, she she didn't even succeed in doing that. Right on we go. Now, what's Agrippina doing at this at the, through it this time, Alice? Alice well, Lake. already Agrippina has been manoeuvring Nero into prominence. So while Messalina was still um, married to Claudius and still very much alive, Agrippina has been um, getting Nero to um, shine and be applauded massively. How old is Nero about this time? Um, so uh, Nero, um, I'm thinking particularly about the um, games that Claudius put on when yeah. to celebrate the 800th anniversary of the foundation of Rome. At this time Nero is nine Britannicus, um, Claudius's real son, with Messalina is six. Um, and the story goes that Messalina um, actually maybe even provided clacks of people to applaud Nero. Um, and at this point, Messalina um, started to worry that maybe, maybe Nero and Agrippina were posing a real threat. And some of the sources suggest that that's why she started to um, establish this relationship with Silius and maybe try and oust, um, oust Claudius. Um, so already, long before her marriage to um, uh, Claudius Agrippina is perhaps manoeuvring behind the scenes. What we're then told is that on Messalina's death, um, it becomes important for Claudius to marry again. Um, one reason is that it's important for him to start to re-establish confidence in the imperial family. We're told that a number of names are put forward, and Agrippina is one of them, and she's the one who finds favour because of her descent from Augustus and because she has Nero, um, who's also descended from Augustus. She and Claudius together can unite the two lines of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Um, so what then emerges is really a joint PR campaign up to a point. One thing that's important not to overlook is that the marriage between Claudius and his niece, Agrippina, is incest. It's um, it's uh, uh, offending against divine and human law, as Tacitus tells us, um, and it requires a special dispensation from the Senate to get it approved. Um, and that's one reason why there's then quite a big PR campaign from both of them. Agrippina starts to feature very prominently on coins at the start of Claudius's reign, um, the first time ever that a, a Roman empress has been featured on the same coin as her living um, husband while he's still emperor. Um, She's afforded all sorts of honours and titles, far more than any of his other wives and indeed than any other imperial women have been given. So it's not just Agrippina who starts to manoeuvre her way in, um, it's Claudius who's got a vested well, interest in that too. 
And Matthew, from what I've read, from what you've written and from other stuff, the, um, she's a good influence on him, it mm. seems, uh, but she is not without moral depravity. We must keep that in the ring. I mean, it isn't, it's Messalina, from reports, from it is said, but Messalina doesn't have the monopoly. Yes. So can you give us a, 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 a rounder picture of Agrippina when she extraordinarily marries Claudius? Well, if we if we zoom right out and look at the bigger picture, it has been said that the last years of Claudius's reign, when Agrippina was his wife, and the first years of Nero's reign, when Agrippina, uh, Nero was sixteen when he took over, and she's ex- a big influence over her teenage son, that these years are relatively, uh, and this is by low standards, admittedly, calm, free of extrajudicial murder and all the horrors that we hear of in the Julia Claudian court. So, as a political operator, she may could be said have brought some stability in. We heard about Messalina being sexually loose. So is Agrippina. She sleeps with with a lot of people, according to the sources, but there's a difference. Messalina does it for her own pleasure. Agrippina does it always spe dominationis, Tacitus says, in the hope of power, in the hope of control. So she's a manipulator. Um, You can read a lot of of, of bad on the surface in the literary sources who want her to be a sort of pantomime villain, an arch mother and manipulating behind the scenes but you can perhaps under the surface see some sense in which she was quite a canny political operator. This might be a good time to chant to look at this uh, pantomime villain thing this representation of the women as morally depraved uh, uh, it, these are from writers who could be called misogynists without stretching if you're nodding I'm pleased to see thank you very much and also it throws the men into rather fine relief having these terrible women harridans rather. What I mean, what value do you give to that representation of them in the sources you've studied? I think we can say that it throws into interesting relief the obsessions and fears of male elite writers in the early 2nd century when Suetonius and Tacitus are writing many decades after the event. Whether it gives us a true picture of the human being Agrippina when it's filtered through so many layers of hearsay and rumour and literary crafting... I don't know, but we can see that they're afraid of female soft power suborning what they see as the proper political exercise of power in the open. And as, as Matthew mentioned earlier, um, while, I, while Agrippina is married to Claudius and in the early years of Nero's reign, there's an awful lot of successful foreign policy, an awful lot of things that are going well at Rome, but Tacitus gives a disproportionate amount of narrative to these episodes where Agrippina is doing away with um, a potential rival or um, uh, uh, managing to persuade Nero to uh, managing to persuade Claudius to adopt Nero. It doesn't seem much doubt though or you said that she got, did away with Claudius Yes. She poisoned him. The sources are pretty unanimous on this. Josephus and Philostratus cast a little Why doubt. Why did she do that? Else. Well the moment seems to be right for it. It's October 54. Um, Claudius um, let us remember is 64 years old and it's been a hot summer. He might just have died of natural causes of fever but all the sources suggest it was poisoning. So in 53, Agrippina and Nero's star had been pretty high. He was, Nero was named as a successor when Claudius fell ill temporarily. It looks like Nero's going to inherit... So she does poison him, we think. So Catherine, yes. Nero takes over. He is the emperor-in-waiting. She's manoeuvred him ahead of, ahead of uh, Britannicus' real son, Britannicus, named after this place. And uh, so... Well, that's true. I mean, we have to remember there's a three-year age difference between Nero and Britannicus. So Nero's only 16, Britannicus is only 13. So um, Nero is kind of a a more plausible candidate to succeed uh, Claudius at this point. I mean, I do think we need to be quite sceptical about the stories of poisoning. We find similar stories told about Livia in relation to Augustus. um, And it is very much a trope of of the manipulative, you know, evil... uh, 
um, emperor's wife who is scheming to get her son into power because, of course, it was um, Livia's son. I mean, do you believe them, or do you think? I'm intrigued. I've read all this stuff. It's terrifically exciting. It's very operatic, very dark, very what it is, sort of uh, Game of Thrones-ish, except plus. Right. Do you believe it? Um, I don't think I do believe it, to be honest. But I, I think it is. I think it is a. It's. Um, it becomes a kind of running theme. In so Maslina wasn't a prostitute, and and. Uh, <laughs> oh well, well no, no, I, no, I don't. I don't believe Maslina was a prostitute either. I think that's another way in which uh, one can uh, uh, these these aristocratic male writers make sense of women in public. Um, it is. Is they've got to have found their way there by some evil means or other. So none of it's true. So what we've been talking about <laughs> is just a lot of uh, bosh. I think it represents the stories that were circulating at the time, and those in themselves are interesting because they give us an insight into how people... But you have proof that the proof is not right. I don't have proof. Of course not. <laughs> but some of the historians themselves, so Dyer Cassius, writing a good 150 years later, talks. <coughs> he talks about, in particular in relation to Nero and Agrippina, he talks about the fact that there, were, there was nothing that went on behind the palace that didn't become public, but also loads of other things were said of them that couldn't possibly be verified or true. Um, so there's a grain of truth in some of it, presumably. But to go back to the Messalina, had Messalina been as sexually promiscuous as our sources claim, surely someone would have said Britannicus wasn't fathered by Claudius. And no one actually said that. So there, there, there must have been some assumption that she was a virtuous wife to Claudius. Well, maybe just up until Britannicus. Perhaps up until then. But it, it would have been entirely... I'm seeking the truth here from this chair. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> OK, in this strange and, uh, and story, Alice, Nero and Agrippina, the relationship between them, he came to power... And as Matthew said, the first two years of his power, 16 to 18, were applauded. He was welcomed by the Roman people. He did things that they wanted him to do. And then he degenerated. How come and what, what happened? Well, um, one of the things we're dealing with is a teenage boy who um, is starting to become frustrated by the interference and criticism of his mother. And um, as Suetonius tells the story, it, is that it, is, it starts in as petty way as that, that he's frustrated by her constantly criticising him. Um, it is clear from the coinage that from about 55 onwards, Agrippina stops being represented alongside Nero on the coins, and he starts to break out from behind her shadow. Um, we're told that um, he starts to make friends of his own, of whom she disapproves heartily, and we're also told that those friends are terribly disreputable characters who lead him into all sorts of vice. He's someone who's interested in painting and singing. That doesn't necessarily re lead to the fact that you want to and you succeed in assassinating your mother. No, indeed. Right, how did that come about? Um, well, one, um, one episode um, is Nero begins an affair with a freedwoman, Acti, um, and we're told by Tacitus that this astute woman, Agrippina, suddenly becomes incredibly jealous and silly and um, very worried about the fact that she's losing her grip over... Um, over her son and she starts trying to st put a stop to the affair and then she starts trying to facilitate it when that doesn't work um, but this drives Nero into the um, arms of his other advisors Seneca and Burrus Burrus the prefect of the Praetorian Guard Seneca his former tutor and he ends up asking, asking his mother to move out of the palace she becomes isolated um, he also we're told murders Britannicus, which is something that shocks Agrippina and um, further destabilises her sense of power. Um, and eventually, and then he sends in a gang to kill her. Eventually, he um, decides that he must do away with her. And this is partly inspired by um, a new love of his, Poppea, 
who starts who who wants Nero to divorce. But his the, the nub of it is that he sends half a dozen people or whatever it is. She's isolated in this place, and they kill her. And she's be, she's given um, she's given Matthew a sort of noble Roman death. Yes, in the record. There's all sorts of shenanigans before that with the collapsing boat and people. Yeah, we, we can the, bypass those. Too many assassination attempts. The one that did it is all we're on. It's at the all moment. part of the, the same one. Yeah. In it. And she's alone in her villa. She hears uh, crashes in the corridor. A party come, of, of not particularly high-ranking officers, it has to be said, come and 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 kill her. And she does get a noble death speech where she bears her belly that bore Nero um, and says, "Strike here, ferry ventrum. Kill me here, where the trouble started." And Tacitus says this fulfills a prophecy that when Nero was born, um, it was foretold he would rule as emperor but would kill her. And she said, Ocidat dum imperat, let him kill me as long as he gets to be emperor. So she had her wish in a way, and at the moment of her death she was reminded of that. There's a sense in which in the records it is said, <laughs> I love these records, um, that this redeemed her in many ways. She, she had a noble death. That right, Kat. You're nodding vigorously, Catherine. I am. Yes. Well, I think I think the things that Tastus is very, very ambivalent about Agrippina. There are things that he finds actually quite admirable about her. She's the great survivor. She's made it through the reigns of Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and into the reign of Nero. And finally, she falls victim. And he he does talk about how how ultimately. Um, vulnerable she is because it's never her own power it's always the power that, that she has through somebody else Is that a reckoning that you would give? We're summing up her now what, how, would you, how would you place her? Well, I think that's right. That I mean, it, it's always soft power, and that means you know she doesn't command the legions. Um, she's got people in the Praetorian Guard who who are quite loyal to her, but ultimately it's her son who who uh, gives them their orders. So you know that really means that eventually she she kind of runs out of options um, when when her son has decided that she's got to go. I mean, you admire her for the manoeuvring between five, in, in, as it were, for playing games, five different emperors, but she gets. Uh, uh, to have her own son as emperor, and uh... well, she might have been. I mean, perhaps if she'd been the ruler, she would have done a better job um, without having to do all that <laughs> manipulating. But it, I mean, as, as Matthew was saying earlier, if we look at kind of what happened in the reigns of of Claudius and Nero, um, that. Um, the, the number of executions that happen in the first part of Claudius's reign is much higher than the second part of the reign. It looks as though there's a real attempt for Claudius to cooperate with the Senate, that we tend to get ideas being developed first in the Senate and then So Claudius, she has a good influence. I think Alice, so. how far do you think that the, the dark side, the sort of, uh, yeah, the dark side of Agrippina, which is poisoning, murdering, all that, how far do you think that is the real Agrippina? I think it's very much a construct of Tacitus, the historian. Um, there's a play that was written um, called The Octavia before Tacitus wrote his histories, and in that, Agrippina appears as a ghost who's full of remorse and self-pity. Um, Tacitus is largely responsible for the image that we subsequently get, this very colourful picture, and he, he, he categorises her with these clichés. She's a, she's a wicked stepmother, she's a murderess, she usurps male forms of power. And you think that's not really what really happened? What do you think, Matthew, finally? I think um, there's no one around to defend her after she dies. Nero rules for another nine years. There's no one to give a positive image. So she slips into history with uh, her murder at the hands of her son being her last great act on the stage. And that colours what comes after. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm quite exhausted after that. <laughs> Thank you very much, Matthew Nichols, Alice Koenig and Catherine Edwards. Next week, we'll be talking about the Sikh Empire. Thanks very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. It usually begins by what did, we leave, what did I leave out? 
We rushed yeah. through the collapsing boat, which is a great story. Well, I know it's a great story. We didn't have time. I could see you revving up on the collapsing yeah. boat, Matthew, with the lady in the roof and the, the maid servant who said, I am Agrippina, to get off, and they realised that she got yeah. killed with an oil. Uh, Agrippina swam to the shore to cheering crowds. Oh, you know the story? Well, I, I saw it on Hollywood film. It? <laughs> <laughs> it's right all there in Tacitus. It's, it's a great story, but we didn't have time. Yeah. I think I mean, a couple of very interesting episodes that, that typify the accusation that she's usurping uh, male power. One in the reign of Claudius, when the, the British um, chieftain Caratacus comes to Rome and he's made to, to pay homage to Claudius. And he also pays homage to Agrippina, who's sitting on, a, an, on another dais. So that's a very important moment. And the, the idea that there's this woman sitting in front of the standards of the Roman people, this is a complete novelty. And, and then that's kind of superseded by an episode in the reign of Nero when a delegation comes from Armenia and Nero's sitting on his dais waiting to receive them. And um, Agrippina comes in and it looks like she's going to come and sit next to him. And this is such a shocking idea that Seneca sort of whispers in Nero's ear. Nero has to go down and carefully meet his mother and steer her off in another direction so that she doesn't kind of... um, take over this this what's seen as an absolutely male prerogative of interacting with with um, foreign dignitaries how, how far is the fact that you are women how far does it affect your your uh, skepticism about the sources I find it very interesting reading um, the way in which lots of male 20th century historians have talked about Agrippina the Younger. Um, They'll read Tacitus and they'll say, well, we have to take a lot of what Tacitus and Suetonius say with a pinch of salt because one of the things they're doing is expressing their male concern about the... um, uh, dreadful influence that women can have in public life and then they will use vocabulary and analogies of their own that they haven't got from Tacitus that are very revealing of their 20th century anxieties about powerful women um, conversely there's a there's a fantastic book by Judith Ginsburg um, which doesn't rehabilitate Agrippina but which actually looks hard at the visual evidence and at the literary evidence and um, looks at the inconsistencies and the the, the um, uh, the variety of ways in which Agrippina was represented, because in the visual evidence, she's portrayed as um, often as the sort of the, the goddess series, a woman who symbolises Roman bounty, Roman motherhood, um, and yes, it, so it is. It is interesting. I think I probably do respond to her as a woman myself. I wouldn't want to take tea with her. <laughs> I wouldn't want to take tea with her either. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, rather interesting to take tea with her. You'd be very careful. <laughs> well, you wouldn't oh, you eat took the mushrooms. Your own tea. <laughs> yes, you'd, you'd, uh, you'd taste it carefully first. Uh, our sources also are writing later. It's not just the fact that they're they're men in a men's world. That's of course important, but they're also writing after an interval of time when Rome is looking back with horror at this dynastic mess that Julia Claudian's got the city into for the empire into for half a century. And at a period when there's been an emperor who came in with two adult sons, that was part of the bargain. So the, the succession was secure up until AD 96. And then it moved to a system of succession by adoption, uh, where you could choose an adult heir who was right for the role. So they're looking back in a, a slightly more stable time at the sheer tangle of dynastic politics. Men and women caused that. I think one's, one thing that's very interesting about the period afterwards is that in the Flavian dynasty, which followed the Julio-Claudians, and then afterwards as well, you don't get very prominent women. Mm. So you, Agrippina may um, have been one reason, you know, the, the notoriety of Agrippina may have been one reason why imperial women after that were kept very much under wraps. And here's Victoria, who produced it. Thank you, that's great. I'm not Agrippina. <coughs> I'm 
tea and coffee. <laughs> there are many more history and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio 4.